For uh, four Sundays, not continuously, but we have been in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, and this Sunday brings us to the bright, white, hot, burning core of it. Let's look at verses 21 through 24. Woman, says Jesus, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking true worshipers to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Flying into St. Louis about almost two weeks ago, literally took Stephanie's and my breath away. We skirted a thunderstorm that made the grandest 4th of July fireworks look like fireflies. Lightning bolts, huge, brilliant, multiple, simultaneous, continuous, filled the horizon for half an hour. They weren't spaced out with delays between the cracks. At any given moment, there might have been four or five bolts splitting the sky with a white brilliance in each one of them brighter than daylight itself. And while there was still a visual retention of them in our retinas, others took their place, unrelenting, powerful, dazzling. I lingered around after the plane was unloaded to speak with the pilots. I expected to hear some reassurance, something like, oh, that's just what thunderstorms look like in the Midwest, or... That's what they look like all the time above the clouds. Instead, to my surprise, no reassurance was forthcoming. They said, it was pretty intense, wasn't it? (laughs) We'd never seen anything like it. When our forecaster told us about it, we wondered whether or not to believe him. Most disconcerting of all, one said, It was so bad, I was flying with my eyes closed. (laughs) Verse 23 brings us to the heart of this passage and of the matter and of all matters. The Father is seeking real, authentic, true worshipers. Now, an implication of that passage is that everything needs to worship. There is, of course, an important sense, a deep sense, that human beings, created as we are in the image of God, worship in different ways than the heavens worship. But the Bible does say to glorify, to ascribe honor, to declare the glories of, to submit to the greatness of God is the universal design of everything. Everything is created to worship. In Psalm 19, the psalmist says something which you've maybe heard before and therefore you don't realize the radical nature of the claim. It says, the heavens 
are telling of the glory of God. Their voice goes forth to the ends of the earth. It's saying, look at the beauty of the heavens and the sky and the stars and the lightning and the showers and the canyons and the peaks. Look at the beauty of the mountains and the seas. Why are they so beautiful? They are beautiful because they are declaring what they were created to do. They are speaking of the glory of God. They are submitting to and declaring the glory of their creator. They're being exactly what they were created to be. And therefore, they are glorifying God. They are, in a sense, worshiping. Has anybody ever uh, stop? I don't know. They, I, I know they don't hit to me. And have their breath taken away by your beauty? The psalmist says all these things happen because they are doing what they were created to do and to be. Worship is a universal need. Um, Everybody has to worship something. My brother's family in New York, strange as I know this sounds to us out here, are New York Yankees fans. They study the objects of their adoration. They read about the Yankees. They study the statistics. They talk about them. They praise them on the one Evening we had together for a family reunion, we watched the Yankees. When they described how their great closer of almost two decades, Manuel Rivera, retired last year, then when they went around every stadium in every league gave him a standing ovation, when they described that, their faces glowed. That's worship. Some years ago, the uh, novelist Tom Wolfe, who happens to be a Christian, I think that's why he was able to come to such profound insights, wrote an article called The Worship of Art. In it, he says, the upper classes today largely sneer at Christianity, but they have to have some kind of religion because everybody does. Everybody worships something. So their new religion, he writes in this essay, is art. He says that years ago in the great mansions, the lobbies and parlors were adorned with crosses and crucifixes and stars of David. But today in their places are pieces of art. He says in all the great mansions that have been built in New York City in the early part of the century, they all had chapels. But go into those chapels today and you'll see that what is there is beautiful art. And when you walk in, you have to be reverent. You meditate. You mustn't talk loudly in front of the art. To use those chapels for prayer would actually be considered to be bad taste. He says, it used to be that rich people would leave their estates to their churches. Now they leave it to the Metropolitan Museum. He says, today to show you're a person of spirituality and substance, that you're not just a crass materialist, you turn to art. It's a kind of worship. As he regularly does, C.S. Lewis, Dr. Aiken puts it well. He says, for our spiritual nature, like our bodily natures, 
we must serve them. Deny them food, and we will gobble poison. In other words, we are either worshiping the living God or we are worshiping something else, which is to say we are gobbling poison. Of course, let me hasten to say that we can have interests and passions and be sports fans. The question is, what gives first meaning to your life? What moves you to tears? What gets you by the throat? Those aren't scientific opinions or Rational attitudes, they are religions, religious ones. That's worship. If nobody has caught you up and lost their breath before your beauty, it's probably because you aren't doing what you are meant to do with all your heart and soul and strength. And St. Louis, Stephanie and I visited a radiantly beautiful 94-year-old woman, Evie Dickerson. One of the most beautiful human beings I have ever known. She takes my breath away. For almost half a century, she did what Beth Singleton does. She directed choirs of praise. Beth, you instantly would become best friends with Evie Dickerson. So our text knows that worship is inevitable. We will worship something. God is not seeking worshipers. He is seeking authentic, real, true worshipers. And the heart of that kind of worship, our spirit tells us straightforwardly, simply, the deepest things are awful simple, often simple, without being simplistic. God is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. True worship brings both of those things together. You can't have enthusiastic heresy on the one hand and barren orthodoxy on the other. You cannot have heat without light. You can't have heart without head. The two have to be in balance. Worship must be both vital and real from within, and it must be based on a true perception of God. So let's look briefly at those two complementary poles. Let's unpack authentic worship in terms of spirit and truth, and first comes spirit. That means, at a minimum, to worship God from our inner beings. Real worship isn't superficial or external or perfunctory, it's from the heart. That's what the psalmist means in 103 when he said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And what Paul means in Romans 1.9 when he says, I worship God in spirit. There is an exegetical question, a question of interpretation of the Bible, of course, as to whether or not that spirit should be translated with a capital S or a small s. Is it the Holy Spirit or the human spirit? And in this case, I think the right answer is both. In the chapter just before this one, in the third chapter of John, the sixth verse, He combines the Holy Spirit and the human spirit in a deeply profound and remarkable way. He says, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Only that which is renewed and restored and born again and touched by the Holy Spirit really deserves the name of the human spirit in all that is created to be. 
Stephen Charnock was a uh, 17th century divine, and I, when I want to find really profound things, I go to him. He says, we may truly be said to worship God, though we lack perfection. But we cannot be said to worship God if we lack sincerity. So in other words, we can worship God imperfectly, but we cannot worship him insincerely. So we wield our spirits, our small spirits, to release them to the Holy Spirit, to be transformed and renewed and lifted and filled by his presence and by his power. When we do that, we can worship God in the depths of the Spirit. In spirit. And in truth, all worship that is authentic worship is a response to truth. There is no worship that is not linked inseparably to truth. Worship is a response to the living God which means it is a response to his truth. Verse 22 makes this clear. Listen to it again. You worship, the Samaritans, what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. When all our efforts to be sensitive and politically correct and respectful of another person's religion are done, There is a time eventually to come to say biblical worship is true worship and other kinds of worship are false. If there is truth, and if you have bowed humbly before it, then to try to persuade another to bow humbly before it too isn't arrogance. It's love. God has disclosed himself, the Bible tells us, truly in his creation, in the heavens and in the earth. Theologians call that general revelation. And I have students memorize the phrase that God reveals himself in all places, at all times, and all peoples. But Romans one twenty five says that everyone has exchanged that truth for a lie and worship and serve creatures rather than the creator. If we are to worship in truth, then we are to worship the true God. If we are to worship God truly, we are to worship the God of the word, the God who has revealed himself, not exhaustively, not everything that is to be known about God, but normatively. He has revealed himself in his word with a standard, with a canon against which Everything is to be tested. You can't worship God in a vacuum. You can't worship God apart from his self-introduction, apart from his revelation. All worship is worship in in response to the truth of God. Psalm 47, 7 says it beautifully. Sing praises with understanding. Beth taught us a few weeks ago, that the early church worshipped in songs and in hymns and in spiritual songs and made melody. And one of the critical passages where that is conveyed is in Colossians three sixteen and 17. But at the very outset of that, in the first part of verse 16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ 
dwell in you plerosis, which is to say richly, fully, abundantly. So that when the word dominates you, then your praise is regulated and your worship is conformed to a divine standard. It is true. It is spirited and true. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said that worship should have a fuel and a furnace and a heat. I think he's left one element out of that. So let's add it. The fuel of worship for Edwards is the truth of the sovereign God. And the furnace of true worship is our renewed spirits. We've already talked about that. Made alive and warm by the flame of truth. And the heat of worship is our affections. Pushing their way out, he writes, in tears and confessions and prayers and Praises, But let's add to that the fire of worship. That makes the fuel burn hot. And it is the quickening of the Holy Spirit himself. Notice verse 34. When Jesus' disciples come back with food, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So clearly from this text... The work of God is to seek true worshipers. Therefore, we should see this whole interchange with the Samaritan woman as the work of God in Jesus Christ to seek and create and form and call a true worshiper. What are the applications and implications of this? Let me just name a few. It means that all of us should be systematic and careful in Bible study. We should take the word of God and let it, as Charles Spurgeon says, marinate in us. We should dwell on it until it becomes radioactive in our soul and the truth begins to shine. We should marinate on the word of God so that we could focus on the truth. Pilate's question, really the modern question, is what is truth? And scripture answers it in many places. It is God's word and it is finally God's living word. It is a person. I'm struck in this text that when the Samaritan woman either tries to distract Jesus or to go to something important, she says, where do we worship? In our mountain or in your temple? Jesus doesn't say Not there, but here. And he doesn't say that God is spirit because we worship him everywhere. That is a misreading of the text. Not at all. He doesn't say, no, you don't need a worship temple. He says, the hour is coming and now is. And whenever John's gospel refers to the hour of Jesus, it means his death. You do need a temple. You need a sacrifice. You need a place where your sins are bought and paid for. And the hour is coming where it will be given. You need living water and it can't come without that. There's a foreshadowing of all of this. This whole story starts with Jesus addressing the Samaritan woman by saying, I... I'm thirsty. Can you give me a drink? 
He's going to say those words again, and they will be from a cross. And he is going to say, I thirst. The sun dehydrates us, and death can come in a torturous way. And John's gospel is saying that is just a picture of what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross because the wrath of God and the justice of God His eternal justice came down upon his shoulder ten million times more torturous. And he died of thirst. Because you see, to give us living water, Jesus had to die of thirst. What we are dying for, what we are living for, is the face of God. On the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the psalm runs on and says, I'm poured out like water. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. So here's what he did. On the cross, Jesus died of thirst so that you could know living water. He had the ultimate spiritual thirst. He died of thirst so that you could know the cool water of the living God. Look at this and you will see what Stephen taught us in the children's story. A picture of inestimable worth. And if you fill your mind with that, you will know what God is worth. And you will find a natural instinct well up in you to worship him because that is what you were created to do and to be. It reminds me of Gandalf in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. One of the little hobbits looks at Gandalf and he notices Gandalf is pretty upset, but he looks deeper at him. And then Tolkien writes... In the wizard's face, he saw only lines of care and sorrow. But underneath, there was a great joy. A fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing. That's what being a Christian is all about. And that's what worship means. When we gaze on the face of the Lamb of God, who is of inestimable Father, we thank you that you have given us a life to live full of praise and service and obedience and love. You have called us to be something larger than we could be alone and larger than we could be without you. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection and his current reign. May we gaze on him. May we marinate our lives in him. May we serve and worship and love him all the days of our life. For it is in Jesus' name we pray.